Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So when I was in college, I wasn't a huge gamer, but I was a little bit of a gamer. Do you remember the video game Sim City? Sim, S-I-M, not S-I-N, don't freak out. Sim City, it's short for Simulation City, in which you get to be this dictatorial mayor that is given an allotment of money and you can like create a little city slash empire. I mean, you begin with, you know, a few buildings and then you end up needing a police station and then you need a fire station, you need a hospital. Well, I built this beautiful city. I was very proud of myself. I even built the Empire State Building in the middle of it. And, and at the gateway of the city, it had the Eiffel Tower just to welcome people to a sort of a fake Paris. Anyway, I planned the city exceptionally well. I got the population up to a million. I had a 94% approval rating, which for me was, you know, okay. I was getting there. But then something happened. It was late at night and I fell asleep and I kept the game going. Well, whilst I slept, tragedy struck my beloved city. There was a UFO attack. And, and, it, and, it, and it burned the city to the ground. And very few people live there anymore because it was all burning up. And my approval rating fell to 8%. Uh, so my plans for utopia failed. I, I failed as a mayor. And so now I'm a priest. So, you know, it all worked out. Um, but I want to talk about planning. That was my ham-handed comedic segue into what I'm really going to talk about today. Um, Planning, because James, in his epistle, is very concerned with how we formulate plans. Remember, James is about integration, how uh, faith connects with day-to-day experience. And I find that we're either constantly making plans or terrified to make plans. Many of you are very type A. I mean, you're very driven to understand, you know, the the nature of your future and to reduce chaos and perplexity as much as possible. So you're constantly making plans, maybe about your forthcoming marriage, maybe about your retirement, maybe about a vacation that you would like to take, maybe about a little vengeance that you want to introduce against an enemy, yeah? Maybe you want to change your major. Maybe you want to fix up your house, but you have a plan. You have a plan for lots of things in your life. Um, For other people, you know, we avoid making plans because we're afraid to make a mistake. We're afraid to overmanage, to overcontrol, and so we're frozen, and we don't want to actually venture forth and create any plans that could be failures or critiqued by others as failures. Well, St. James believes that there is a wise as well as an unwise manner of planning. And so I want to contrast with you, given what James writes, contrast with you conceited planning versus consecrated planning. Conceited planning versus consecrated planning. So let's talk about conceited planning first, uh, especially as James writes about it in verse 13, and he beats us up a little bit, but let's, let's walk with him. Verse 13. So he's inviting us. He says, come now, 
you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now, you have to notice, like right away, the, the people that are making plans are not making plans to, you know, like blow up a building or murder somebody or doing something dastardly. They're just people involved in the world of commerce. They want to make a profit because everybody here wants to make a profit. I mean, it's why you have a retirement account. You want to make a little profit. It's why you're in, in business, right? You want to make some profit. You want to have some more money at the end of your month, right? Well, that's what, that's what they want. This is the language of commerce, right? They're making plans to secure a financial future. And uh, we do this. It's why we have IRAs. It's why we change careers in our mid-40s. It's why we focus on interest rates and the NASDAQ. I mean, there's like a place for that. Um, but James isn't so concerned about people who are, like, employed. He doesn't want, like, to create a world of unemployment. Instead, he's very concerned about the mode from which people think about their own personal economies. Because he sees arrogance in people's emotional lives. And he thinks that arrogance and conceit is a very, very bad foundation for engagement with the world, even the world of private enterprise. Um, and so, and we know that he's very concerned with conceit because in verse 16, at the end of our passage, he critiques his audience for boasting in their arrogance, right? These people have a problem with how they feel about and think about and internally process the whole notion of private economics and their own businesses, right? Uh, this is uh, this impulse to have a, a mode, an unhealthy mode about personal economics is beautifully or hauntingly illustrated, depending on who's uh, doing the evaluation. In the 1987 film Wall Street, which some of you have seen, uh, with Michael Douglas, who plays this ambitious uh, stockbroker named Gordon Gecko. Some of you, yes, anybody? Like three of you know what I'm talking about, thank God. Um, okay, so he makes this very memorable speech in the film, uh, and, and uh, he, he says to this group of, of very powerful executives, greed, he says, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms for life, money, love, knowledge marks the upward surge of mankind. Greed, mark my words, will save the United States of America. Unfortunately for Gordon Gecko, it doesn't work out that way, um, and the end of the film doesn't end very positively, at least in, re in regards to his own person. Um, but James is so concerned with uh, our emotive mode as we think about personal finances and as we think about business, that he wishes to pull the plug on our babble project to really kill our conceit. So he writes uh, with great poignancy, what is your life? And then he reminds us who we are. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He says, if you want to really understand the world uh, with some internal health. You need to remember who you are, what you are. You are a mist, you exist, and then you vanish. 
That's who you are. You know, the Bible repeatedly and, uh, depending on your perspective, annoyingly reminds us of our temporality, of our non-everlastingness. Uh, the Bible is, is very repetitive regarding this, uh, this understanding. I mean, in Genesis, right after the fall, it reminds us that we came from dust, and to dust we shall return. Isaiah, the prophet, likens us to leaves that grow and then wither away. And the rather challenging book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that all of life is, remember it, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Uh, the Hebrew is breathless, breathless, all is breathless, meaning that the things that we prize don't often last very long, that we are missed. And I want to just think about our mistness for just a little bit, uh, because we miss this point to our detriment. Our relationships, all of the people uh, to whom we are devoted, those constructs, those social engagements and um, those bonds are all eventually missed. They exist for a little while and then they disappear. Uh, every every um, marriage, every friendship, um, the loved ones that you care for who are getting sick and maybe developing Alzheimer's and don't recognize your face as readily, it's all missed, according to James. Our health is missed. Our health, our physical and mental health. I mean, and many of you know this because 2022 was cruel to you because you got a diagnosis or you have a friend who got a diagnosis that utterly changed how you or how they saw life and engaged with life because it added an enormous element of uncertainty into, uh, into their experience. This was very true after 9-11. Do you remember after, before 9-11? Uh, we really thought, at least many of us thought, that things would just keep going in a positive direction, the economy would keep growing, uh, we would keep succeeding nationally, and all of a sudden, we realized how fragile everything was after that horrific attack. But even our accomplishments are missed. You know, the careers that we, uh, that we drink so much Red Bull, you know, or so much, you ever drink Monster? It's just terrible. It tastes like lighter fluid. I've never drank lighter fluid, but I imagine it would taste like lighter fluid. I mean, we, we drink a lot of coffee to energize us, to, to, um, to enter full throttle into these careers so that we can survive day to day. And our careers won't even be remembered 30 years from now, right? That w our legacies that we, uh, that we uh, crave and work for, our degrees that we, um, that we suffer for, uh, and so much of that is just missed. It was really uh, fascinating and harrowing when a, a very dear friend of mine who was a retired bishop of the Episcopal Church named Fitzsimmons Allison, uh, he um, worked very diligently to turn around this one church in New York City. And it did turn around and had a thriving ministry. But then when he left, when he left, they had three ministers in a row that were alcoholics who absolutely destroyed the parish. And right now, it is one of the raciest clubs in New York City. And that's saying something. They turned the whole parish into this very racy nightclub. And he says, well, this is my legacy, I suppose. This is what happens. It's breathless, breathless. It's missed. And that's the Bible's message to us, that we are so often deluded by mirages of our own everlastingness, and we make plans as if we were a god setting up an empire. But James sobers us out of self-sovereignty. He says, you are missed on the bathroom mirror. You are here for a little while, and then you disappear. Now, if James had stopped writing there, we would all be nihilists. 
we would be cynical nihilists and say to ourselves with hands thrown up in the air, well, then why plan anything? Because nothing lasts forever. Everything is breathless. Things are worthless. Uh, you know, all the, the sandcastles just uh, return to the sea eventually. So what's the point of effort? What's the point of trying? The UFOs are coming, right? The UFOs will destroy our own little sim cities that we built. Um, well, James doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop by saying, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. He doesn't stop by saying, what is your life? He doesn't stop by saying, you're just missed. Instead, he says there's an alternative to conceited planning, and it's consecrated planning. Consecrated planning. Now, this is in verse 15. <clears throat> Instead, so he gives us an alternative. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, you may know that when Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, was unsure how to plan his life, uh, he would uh, deliberately distrust his own mood and opinions and thoughts, and he would consult his daemon. Now, don't worry, daemon does not mean demon. Uh, daemon is a Greek word for sort of cosmic and yet very personal integrity. He would consult a higher power, something higher than himself, more virtuous than himself, to figure out what he ought to do. Well, James agrees at least with that impulse, that is, in order to have rightful plans, you have to have a source to which you are linked that is also higher than yourself and higher than your own dispositions and idiosyncrasies and interests. Uh, and that's why James says, you have to start by saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Um, it's a, a very fascinating that James believes that rightful planning does not begin with the self, but the Lord. Even grammatically, notice he doesn't say, I will do this or that, or I will plan to do this or that if God blesses me. That puts God in the second place. Instead, he says, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Um, and that's just a grammatical and structural way of reminding you and reminding me that within Bible religion, uh, the eternal God and not temporal human beings are at the center of all things. Or to put it another way, God does not live in our world. We live in God's world. Uh, and you see, what fallenness does is it skews our vision. So even if we believe in a deity, that deity is small and we are large. God is the small ingredient that we ingest to make our lives a little better. But the biblical vision is that God is large and we are small. And so he's trying to grammatically remind us of that penetrating truth. And so righteous planning, righteous planning, according to James, always begins with a fresh recognition of true sovereignty. Who is the true sovereign? Uh, who is the one who has a plan that is grander than our plans? Uh, and so James believes that we ought to consider God's will before we start making our will happen. What is God's plan? And then we'll think about our plan. Now, this is hugely important, by the way, when you're making decisions. Because when you're making a, a very significant decision in your life, I think these two questions are always quite helpful, uh, especially as they relate to God's will. The first question is something to the effect of this. Is what I'm planning in accord with God's will as it's revealed in Holy Scripture or not? Um, Remember, I, I, and I've said this before, but God's will is often not the thing that's unclear. It's our will that's unclear. What God wants in Scripture is actually quite clear, sometimes jarringly clear. It's what I want, what I desire, that's often murky. 
but Scripture is given to us for a reason. It's revealed religion. It's not a needle in a haystack. God is actually very clear and plain about many, many things, not everything, but many things in life. And so, if what we want does not dovetail with what He wants, not only is it not God's will, it will come to ruination. Whenever we act out of accord with God's will, you know that it will uh, fall apart. It will be nothing more than mist. So that's the first question, is what I'm planning in, accordance, in accord with God's will as revealed in Scripture. Number two, have I really and earnestly prayed for wisdom from God? That is, a wisdom that would even supersede my own inclinations. Because sometimes you have options that both would fit within a scriptural purview or perspective, and you're just not sure what to do. Well, have we prayed that God would give us insight about our own nature and the nature of this new situation and how the two things might fit together? Uh, so I have, uh, there was a family who's actually returning to this area, a family who moved away for educational purposes but are moving back to Grove City. And when they told me that plan, I started laughing, but I shouldn't have. I said, really? Like you're coming back here? Because they, they're very, very well educated and they could get a job anywhere and make a fortune, but probably not in Grove City, right? Because there's just not a lot of multi-million dollar corporations here in town, and if there are, just let me know. Like, I'm fascinated, I'm interested, and, you know, maybe, maybe the Lord is calling me to something. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but, but I said, why Grove City? And they said, well, we realize that we could make more money elsewhere, but we really miss the, the family and the church that we have here, and we couldn't find that anywhere else in, in the exact same way. And so we would like to come back and connect with those relationships. And that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. They, they prized relationships over money, right? Well, that's a biblical idea. That's a Bible conception. And that was the wisdom from God that they needed to make this move, and they're very happy to be making it. I know that's not the move for everybody, but it was the right move for them. So, so James is saying, instead of just thinking about your own plans, think, what would the Lord's will be? And then live in light of that. Now, I want you to also notice something here that's, I think, really important. Note that James is not saying not to plan. He's not saying not to plan. He's not saying, look, God will, in every circumstance, mystically reveal every single detail of every one of his plans for you so that you'll just instinctively know all the time. Incidentally and parenthetically, some people have this grand mistake in their minds that God's will always means that they'll suffer less, right? If, if I'm in God's will, that means that I won't ever hurt. And how I know I'm out of God's will is there's pain in my life. That's a bad conception, right? I mean, Jesus on Good Friday was very much in the will of God, and yet the will of God at that moment was quite painful, yeah? Um, but... Um, but some people think um, that James is telling people not to plan, but that's not true, you know. Uh, many people believe the height of, like, the spiritual enterprise is sort of a sacred lobotomy where God takes your brain away and replaces it with his brain, and he makes our decisions for us. Alas, no, uh, although sometimes I wish that were true. God does not take away my human agency. We still have to make decisions and plans. We're still involved. We're still creatures uh, that respond to Him. But my point is that we're to have our plans shaped by an already established plan from God, and that plan is given to us in sacred Scripture. We can learn a lot about God's will and plan for our lives from the very revealed text and to have that shape how we think and function. So, we act out of His wisdom, not just our own. That's the idea. 
So consecrated planning, friends, a means that we make our plans, but we make them with appropriate humility. We, when we begin by saying, if it is God's will, I will do thus and such, that's an acknowledgement of our non-sovereignty. Our non-sovereignty. It's a way of saying, look, there's a million factors that I don't understand or know about. There's a million pitfalls in my future that I cannot foresee, but I entrust my plans to the only one who is not frail, who is not missed, who does not vanish after a day. I take my temporal plans and I put them into the hands of eternity, and I trust them there, right? By the way, when people think about sovereignty, sometimes they get very scared thinking there's a divine will that, is super, that supersedes our own. Um, let me just say this to you. You are far safer in the will of that sovereign than you are in your own sovereignty because he's the friend of sinners. He's the one with scarred flesh. He's the one who bled for you. Those are the hands of sovereignty, and you're far safer in his hands than yours. Um, so when we, um, when we think about consecrated planning, that is, deferring to a wisdom that supersedes our own, we don't need to go any further, for an example, than Jesus himself, who under great duress in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was um, bleeding into the soil as he prayed, he, he concedes, right? His humanity is def definitively concerned about what's going to occur to him the very next day, but yet he defers. He defers to the wisdom of God, the dark wisdom of God, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Um, that is consecrated planning. When our plans are influenced by God's revealed plan in Scripture, um, uh, we, are, we are not only well within His will, we will do far less damage in this world because when you are in line with God, not only will you be helped, but everybody else around you will be helped. And so when you think about planning today, when you think about your future, when you think about where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, what about education, when will you retire, what house should you buy, you put those plans before the Lord. Is it in line with Scripture or not? And um, am, am I honestly praying that God will give me a practical wisdom as I go through these things? And if you do, you'll cause far less damage, far less damage. Now, where's the gospel in this today? Where's the gospel in this passage, the gospel of exoneration, freedom, and mercy? Um, I think, I think I want to end with this gospel lift for us because I think it's, it's found in seeing our little plans, and everybody here has a lot of little plans, seeing our little plans in light of the large plan, the big plan, because God has a big plan that is communicated in Holy Scripture, and we belong to a God, friends, whose perfect plan will always prevail even when ours do not. Because you have plans, yeah? Some of them are going to come to fruition and others not so much. Some of them are littered with joys and others are littered with pain. And if only we knew the future of those plans, we would select better. But we don't. So we do the best we can. We lay those things before the Lord. And, and we, you know, we roll the dice and we walk forward. But we know one big plan will never fail. The perfect plan. And here's the perfect plan put in my words, but hopefully reflecting biblical ideas, that intense power and love created the world and you along with it, and that that power and that personality has endowed you with purpose and meaning and strength, 
And when we desired self-idolization, self-saturation, and a false self-sovereignty, God did not orphan us and leave us alone, but instead came closer, so close that he uh, came among us in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back from the dead, to save you through ferocious forgiveness, and to empower you to be his person, his light in the world. In this perfect plan, God has designated you to be a torchbearer within the graying landscape of the world, lacing your plans with his plans so that day by day you create, by your engagement with God, a constellation of light within this graying sky. In other words, you belong to a divine plan that, unlike our plans, cannot fail because it was created by the one who isn't made of mist. There's only one, and you belong to him, and that deal is completely settled. Within God's ultimate plan of redemption, we cannot lose because it's already been decided at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, in the ultimate scheme of things and in the ultimate plan, you're good. You're safe, safe and secure from all alarms. And I learned this in a, in a beautiful way when I, was, when I considered an offer from another church. Um, so in t- it was a long time ago, don't worry, or some of you might think to yourself, maybe you re- should reconsider that. Um, but it was 2010, 2010, I was offered a very tempting, alluring job in the ministry. Uh, uh, and that would involve leaving Grace and taking a job closer to Monique's family in New Jersey. And uh, and, it, and it was, I, you know, I did what I was supposed to do. I got the letter in the mail, and I responded kindly, and the person did a little interview with me, the rector there, and then I went out for a visit, and I toured what, you know, could be my church and could be my office, and all of the walls were mahogany. I'm saying, was uh, what I gave up. And not just that. It was a, like, I had library walls that were like mahogany, and then there was a secret passageway, in, because you pulled a book out, and the mahogany shelf moved, and there was a door d- back to the, the assistant rector's house. I just want to put that out there. It's like, you know, it's really something. And so, but the problem was, I didn't know if it was a good idea. Should I stay or should I go now? I didn't know. And so I, you know, I, I ran that opportunity through my little litmus test. Would it contradict God as God is revealed in Holy Scripture and His will? No, it wouldn't have contradicted that. Yeah? And then I said, but would it be wise for me and for my family? Maybe. I don't know. So what did I do? I made a pros and cons list, and I thought, this will surely settle it. Pros and cons for staying, pros and cons for leaving. Wouldn't you know? The same number of pros and cons in both columns just terrible. I couldn't figure this out. So I did something you're never supposed to do. I called the rector of this other church, and I said, look, I don't know if I should stay or go, and you know, I don't know if I should stay here or work for you. What should I do? It doesn't really communicate a lot of confidence, you know, but but the rector was very, very kind to me and said, look, I think you're wrong with how you're processing all of this. You think that Jesus Christ only exists in one of those futures, but not the other. And you're making a gamble thinking that you better go in the right direction or else you're going to be abandoned. And the rector said, that's not how it works. Jesus Christ exists in both of those futures. Wherever you go, God will bless you. Isn't that good? Because it took me out of the center of everything and put Jesus back in the center. 
Jesus doesn't go. He lives in New Jersey, too. That's the rumor. <laughs> I know. You're as surprised as me. I've been there, too. Yeah, yeah. So there it is. The rector said, make a decision, and you'll be fine. And I did, and I'm fine. I would have been fine there, too. Yeah. So we have plans, you know, plans for our physical health, our vocations, our retirements, our children. That's great. But begin with God's big plan, God's big plan in Scripture, for that will influence our plans in wondrous ways and reduce our stress when we freak out needlessly about the smaller plans in life. And so just tonight, take your eyes off of yourself and your context and your plots and your plans and your future, and instead, take a wide-eyed vision of the Christ in whom God's plan for you becomes an eternal, enduring yes. His plans for you are 100% unthwartable. Amen. Oh,